good morning. It is, it's great to be with you this morning. Welcome. Uh, I, am, I am privileged to share this message with you this morning. But before I get going, I, I would love to pray with us here first. So let's, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm always amazed. We, we, we gather in a place like this on a morning like this, and we find ourselves present before a text that is like 2,000 or more years old, and yet somehow in your divine wisdom, that ancient text has contemporary relevance. Like it meets us in this moment. There's like this intersection that happens with our lives. And that's what we're praying for this morning, that somehow in the midst of all that we are experiencing today, that the truth of what you've revealed long ago would meet us in this moment, and that I wouldn't get in the way of that. In fact, you would use me in spite of me, so that somewhere in all of what we're doing, some really good news is experienced. And so Lord, we're going to trust that you will do that, because you are faithful, you are a good, faithful God, and we give you glory in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as well as the beginning is now and will be forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. So in 2008, I diagnosed myself with a debilitating disease. Anybody else self-diagnosers? Yeah, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. Only this time, I was right. So, so I, I, I would have said that I would have never seen it happening to me, or, or that I was in any way susceptible to it. But I remember the symptoms began right around my 10th college reunion, right? Reunions, those are, those are fun, right? I, it was my 10th college reunion, and my wife and my kids and I, we'd gone back for the customary home football game. I'd been gone long enough to just feel a bit of a disconnect, but short enough to still get the ego stroke from my time of playing college football there and feeling pretty good. And it was right after I got the ego stroke that my, my wife and I, we had gone into the university center to get some Otterbein swag, right? And it was there in the university center that I, that I met my, my former fraternity president. Now, my former fraternity president, he had done a much better job of of keeping up with all of the people that we had played football with and went to school with and partied with. And, and we went through that normal customary like, oh, and so-and-so is over here doing this and he earns this much money and so-and-so is over here and they're doing this and they own this big of a house and so-and-so is doing this and they've traveled all over these places. You know, the really super uber healthy comparisons and insecurity uh, process, right? Like we all know what that feels like. And it was there when I was standing in the university center that I, that I felt like this ache began to creep in. And I didn't know what it was and I couldn't really identify it at the time. And so we walked away. I had to get out of there and just like I, I just, something was not right. And, and that, that ache began to affect me for the next few days of my vacation. And it actually cost me some sleep. And it wasn't until I was watching a commercial that I figured out what the disease was. I, I saw the list of symptoms in the commercial. Anybody watch one of those commercials? You like, they list off all the symptoms. You're like, yep, that's me. That's what I have. So I was watching one of those commercials. And you know what the commercial was? It was a Cadillac commercial. Yeah. So the commercial was this. I still remember it. In this commercial, four young guys drive up in this beautiful black Cadillac. And they park the car in the spot, and they all jump out, and they're four good-looking, young, thin, 
I don't know why that always sticks out for me. Thin guys, and they get, they get out and they start walking around, and right next to them, another black Cadillac pulls up, and these four older gentlemen, distinguished, well-dressed, get out of the vehicle, and they look at the younger guys, and then they look at the car, and there's one line spoken in the entire commercial. The older guys look at the younger guys, and they go, welcome to the club. And it's in that moment that I became painfully aware of my disease. I had a visceral reaction to this commercial. On, on the back end of, of all of those comparisons that happened in the university center and realizing that, that we had not achieved the level of financial success that maybe some of my peers, most of whom I did much better in school then, by the way, I knew some of those guys. I'm like, how did they do that? They were barely able to breathe well. Like, anyways, whatever. Not that I'm holding any of that. Uh, but, but I did find myself in this moment going, oh, I know what the disease is. You know what the disease is? It's dissatisfaction disease. I found myself in this moment probably for the first time truly in my adult life, where I began to realize, like, I was dissatisfied with how much I made, how much I owned, how much I had in the bank, how much success I had had at that point, how many degrees I'd amassed at that point and from where, how big my house was and what car I was driving. I was utterly and absolutely dissatisfied. And you know, you know what dissatisfaction does, right? It, it, it drives us, it drives us into this frenetic pace for wanting to acquire more, right? We sort of stare into our lives and all we see is, is the deficit, what we're lacking. We, we, we find ourselves longing for all of what we don't have. And and it, it sort of fires in us this engine of acquisition and possession and, 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 and leaning forward into more and more. Now we tell ourselves we want rest and we want peace and we want vacation. But our actions betray all of that, don't they? We find ourselves driven by this incessant need for, for more acquisition. Dissatisfaction disease breeds a desperate appetite for more. And this, this disease leaves us with a certain set of symptoms, and we're going to talk about those symptoms, and it's what we've been calling hurry sickness throughout this. And I don't know about you, but those symptoms flare up with me from time to time. I, maybe it's just me, but those symptoms flare up. And the problem with this acquisition need, this, this insatiable appetite, this insatiable desire for more, is that it's literally sucking the life out of many of us. And that's what I want to speak to today. Because we're in week three of this, this ruthless elimination of hurry based upon the book by, by John Mark Comer, by the same name. And, and in this, we are, we are really inviting you to ask the question about your lives. Am I suffering from the symptoms of hurry sickness, where my life is in this frenetic pace of trying to do more, be more, get more, acquire more, 
and it's leaving us worn out, beat up, beat down, broke down, and frustrated. It's this frenetic pace that just doesn't seem to leave us alone. And, and we noted in week one, now if you haven't had a chance to watch these series, I, I want to invite you to go back to COTV online because it's really important because Jesus really has a different vision for our lives than, than much of what the culture that we experience in this world invites us into. In fact, we, we, we look at this passage. This is Jesus' invitation. I love this invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We've been inviting you in this series into the rest of Jesus. In fact, that's why we've been asking you to, to be intentional about building a rule of life. You know what a rule of life is, right? The rule of life is a set of structured practices and behaviors that forces a different kind of pace into your life, where it builds into your life moments of pause, moments of reflection, moments of settling in and settling down long enough to put yourself into check, to recognize when we are being drawn and pulled into a lifestyle that is not conducive to the kind of fullness that Jesus would long for us. It helps us to become aware when dissatisfaction is beginning to settle in and we're looking around us and all we can see is the deficits we're experiencing. And today we want to build upon that. Those set of practices that are going to help us lean forward into this Jesus way of living. And we're going to do so by exploring a concept that I think, for me, has been both gift and challenge. And it's the concept of simplicity. Now, when we talk about simplicity, I, I, want, you to, I want you to hear a take on simplicity. Check this out. Paper. Pretty simple concept. Trees make wood. Wood makes paper simple. So why do we have to take something so simple and make it so complicated? When the lockdown started, I felt like it was a great opportunity to really slow down and, and simplify. Uh, I felt like this was my chance. I, I'm excited. Think about it. We got newspaper, tissue paper, wrapping paper, sandpaper, toilet paper, paper plates, paper towels, paper cups, paper dowels. Where does it end? Why can't we just have one kind of paper? I think we can cut out all of the fringe kinds of paper, the ones that we really don't need, and just use one kind of paper for everything. I can usually get two filters out of one standard size eight and a half by 11 piece of copy paper. Just need a little piece of tape to close it at the bottom for some added flavor. Tastes just as good. Sure, I've heard about other ways people simplify their lives. I was big on the tiny house movement early on. Then I realized that smaller didn't necessarily mean simpler. And it was uh, pretty cold living in a storage unit, especially in the winter. We've even talked about doing some redecorating. Don't touch the wallpaper. And would you please go to Costco and get some good old-fashioned charming, for goodness sake? 
Yeah, so that didn't last long. She said she doesn't like the taste of the coffee. I'm sure we'll find other ways to simplify. I mean, the idea looked good on paper. Yeah, so if you're going to simplify, I, I don't know that I would invite you into that way of doing it. In fact, I wouldn't encourage anybody to try that at home. But this call to simplify, it's not easy for most of us. I want you to listen to a statement made by a 13th century, 13th century Catholic priest and theologian. His name's St. Thomas Aquinas. He says this, what would it take to satisfy human desire? And you know what his answer is? Everything. 13th century. That, that means that what we're talking about today is not a new issue. It's something that's been around for a while. This reality of insatiable desire for more seems to be wired into the way of we doing, being in, living as humans in this world. And, and, and the problem is, is that, is that this insatiable desire for more actually gives us less of what we truly want. Did you know in 1967 there was a study done, Senate actually put out a study, they projected in 1967 that Americans, because of the modern conveniences that would be happening over the next several decades, we would only have to work 22 hours a week, 27 weeks a year. <laughs> Anybody, is that your, right? Like, I'm guessing that's probably, yeah, in fact, what we've actually come to realize is that the opposite has happened. In the midst of all the modern conveniences, we have actually allowed this, this insatiable desire for more, this, this more success, this more stuff, this more money, this more influence, this more prestige, this more, more, more has actually not given us nearly the kind of freedom that we would have anticipated. Author Alan Fadling once said this, and I, I really love this, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. Our, our personal and collective desires for more steals from us what we're hoping that more would give us. Most of us live so perpetually dissatisfied with what we are missing that we never actually stand back, step back, take stock, and be thankful and content with the good things that are all around us. We only see what we're missing, the absence, the scarcity. We have to work longer and harder to afford more, earn more, make more, buy more, bigger, newer, grander. And our dissatisfaction disease leaves us addicted to the drug of accumulating and possessing. We clutter our house with stuff. We clutter our schedules and our calendars with more activities, more hours of work, more events. We clutter our lives with seeking approval, more approval from others. And we clutter our social media with filtered pictures seeking more affirmation. And what is the result of all of this more? It's this aching sense of insecurity, this, this frenetic pace, a, a set of sacrifices that you and I make that rarely pay off in the ways in which we would have believed that they might. Think about this. More stress, more clutter, more hurry 
Less meaning, less connection, less joy. Has this affected anybody but me? But what if I told you today that Jesus has a better way of living? In fact, there's always an invitation in the gospel of Jesus. An invitation to take stock, to look deeply into the ways in which culture is forming and shaping us and to invite us to think about the alternative that is located in the kingdom of God. And Jesus speaks to this in, in one of his parables. It's in, it's in chapter 12 of, of Luke, and it's called the parable of, of the rich fool. Now listen to this parable. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. That's a heavy parable. But can we start out by acknowledging something on the front end, and that is what this parable is not saying? The parable is not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with the success that this person has had due to their ventures. This parable is not saying that there's anything wrong, maybe with even the community influence that he garnered because of that success. The this, this parable is not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with the nature of possessions. And in fact, Jesus isn't even, the, isn't even accusing this man of, of gaining this abundance illicitly. There's no bribery, no theft, no manipulation. There's no mistreatment of workers that we can see of in this passage. This is not a description of what we would call a morally corrupt person. In fact, what this passage seems to just be speaking of is a fool. But what makes this, what makes this so foolish? This is a story of folly, a life that is spent solely pursuing the acquisition of more and bigger and better and the building of bigger barns. A life that is consumed with consumption. To put it bluntly, Jesus is saying that this dissatisfaction disease and its screaming symptoms of acquisition leads to what we would call selfish greed, which is equated with foolishness. This man only thinks of himself. This man lives completely for himself. This man talks to himself and congratulates himself. This man is living in perpetual pursuit of more for himself. And why? I'm guessing it has a lot to do with the kinds of measuring sticks that we use to give us value in this world. But then this story takes this unfortunate turn. His sudden death proves 
that though these things that he'd added to his life might provide a temporary relief, that in the end it doesn't leave you with a whole lot of really anything. That question looms, who gets all your stuff now? All of that more that you've spent your life pursuing, who gets it now? This man is, is known by his greed when he could have been known. Can you imagine the story that could have been told about him? A story about how he leveraged the excess for the sake of others who didn't have what he had? Can you imagine the stories that might have been told? See, Jesus knows the lies and the allure that greed brings into our lives, and he issues that very strong warning, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not exist in an abundance of possessions. Now, in this story, that be on your guard is a present imperative, which means Jesus is imploring us to stay in a constant state of vigilance. Like, don't just watch out once. Like, perpetually be alert to the creeping in of greed that begins to, to find its way into our lives. Because this greed, this acquisition, this desire for more promises us so much but leaves us with so little. In fact, in fact the, the New Testament consistently speaks about the warnings against greed. L listen to this, this, this series of passages. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. With eyes on adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. Now, I would imagine there's not a single one of us that would ever want to be labeled greedy. We tend to see greed outside and away from us, not located in us. I mean, that's somebody else's problem, this, this need to, to constantly buy more and fill things, especially for many of us living in here in the city when we live in real small places. <laughs> We're like, I can't, even, I can't even put the stuff that I own in the place that I have, and I've got no storage. How can I, how can I get more, right? That's a suburban problem, right? They're the ones with the big garages in the basements. Oh, but we have our greed, don't we? We have our greed for position. We have our greed for our status, for prosperity and prestige. We're greedy for the next rung on the ladder, to be regarded by our neighbors, because we have the newest and latest and best and grandest. We're greedy for all the things that we use to compare ourselves against others with. That's often what drives our greed. Now, I wish I could say that I had conquered my debilitating disease. I really, I wish I could tell you, you know, I had this moment back in 2008, and I came to an awareness, and I went, oh, Jeff, and like, there's, I had this beautiful spiritual moment that just made it all go away, and I've been great ever since. Then I walk my dogs through my neighborhood, and this symptoms begin to flare up, 
And I'm walking my dog going, I want a balcony. I want an outdoor garden. I want to know what my neighbor does that makes that much money to afford what they're living in. I had a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, we were talking one day, and he casually mentioned the budget that he has for his internal furnishings for his house. Like he's redoing his house, and he said, well, this is my budget for furnishings. It's what I will make over 12 years of currently doing what I'm doing. That's his furnishings budget, and I, I went, I want to be in that club. I want to I shop at Club Monaco and go to Summer House like three nights a week. And, and I find that this, this incessant desire for more begins to creep in. Because greed is not safe. Greed's not a friend, it's a foe. Greed is a destructive force in our lives. Jesus says that our greed reflects a lack of trust in God. A lack of trust in the kingdom of God and a lack of care for our neighbor. And ultimately what we're talking about here is a heart issue. What's behind our pursuit of more? See, Jesus wants to ask that question. Jesus always wants to get at the heart of things, right? Because like we said, it's not like success or even possession is inherently wrong. It's the heart behind what drives us into the conditions of dissatisfaction that becomes the problem. Now, many of us have been discipled by a certain way of being in this world. Discipled just simply means we've learned a certain way, a certain pattern of being. And we've been discipled by a gospel, but it's not been the kingdom of Jesus' gospel. We've been discipled by the American dream gospel. If you grew up in America or lived here in any spell, we have been discipled by the American dream gospel. And it is a it is a dream of upward mobility and success and material and consumption and all of those things. And it gives us this idealized version of the good. That's what the gospel does. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom of God, speaks to what is good. The gospel of the American dream speaks to what is good. And it's by this idealized version that we begin to measure ourselves. So if I'm successful according to this idealized version, then the ego kicks in and we go, I made it. But if we're not successful according to that idealized version, shame kicks in and says, I'll never make it. But I don't think Jesus wants to measure our lives and our significance based upon the assumptions of how little or much we possess. In fact, Jesus wants to challenge our hearts from the get-go. He wants to invite us, where, where is your heart placed? In fact, he, he makes this statement in Matthew chapter 6. I love this statement. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Within the scriptures is the answer to our disease. It's the remedy. It's, it's the question, where's your heart placed? What are you giving your life away to? What are you pursuing? And Jesus says simply, if you pursue me, if you pursue my kingdom, all that other stuff, yeah, you'll, you'll get it and it'll come and it'll be fine, but it's not going to be the thing that drives you. 
Seek first the kingdom and the things that you really are longing for, that's where it's going to be found. And the Cadillac Club or whatever club that we are currently pursuing will not set the agenda for our ambitions and won't fill our lives with the frenetic pace of acquisition. Easy enough, right? No, it's not easy. Culture is constantly battling against this for all of us. And I've got to, and this is why I think this series is so important, because it's not just telling us that we have to think differently, it's actually inviting us into a set of practices where we have to start doing things differently. And I think that's really important for us. Because if you take a rule of life and then you pair it with the solitude that we talked about last week, this, this capacity to settle into and really reflect deeply upon who God is in our lives, we find ourselves asking the question, is my incessant need for more really a lack of trust that Jesus can give me all that I really need? It makes me ask the question, do I believe that the kingdoms of this world have more to offer me than the kingdom of Jesus has to offer me. And when we, when we find ourselves living into those practices of reflection, we have an opportunity to do something that I feel is, is keen to the, the way of Jesus, which is the about face, or what we call repentance. Because if I feel sucked into cultures, consumptive desires and appetites for more, as I reflect, I can do an about-face and begin to pursue the kingdom. Now we're going to do this maybe for the next few weeks. I'm going to give you an opportunity here. What I want you to do is I want you to pair the rule of life with, with your solitude in this call for simplicity. And I've got a set of questions that I want you to ask yourself over the course of the next few weeks and reflect upon. And I'm going to put them up on the screen, and I, you can take, take your camera, and you can take a picture of these. And in your quiet time, in those moments when you have an opportunity to reflect, I just want you to ask yourself these questions and, and think about what, would your, what your response to those questions would be. How often am I dissatisfied with what I have? How often am I dissatisfied with what I have? What are the messages or definitions of success that I have taken on? Who have I allowed to shape my understanding of success? And where does my shame creep in when I've not measured myself by that definition? How did my family of origin shape my relationship to money and possessions? Next one. Ooh, I, ooh that's a tough one. If I look at my bank statement and my calendar, how would it say I prioritize my time and money? How do I know if, if I own my possessions or they own me? Oh, and by the way, those aren't even the ones that you currently have. Those might be the ones that you're trying to get. What sort of emotional attachments do I have with my things? Do I recognize how marketing and media stir my desire for more, bigger, and better? Um, do I recognize when the Cadillac commercial comes up and says, hey, you want to be in that club? Next question. Does my re current reality suggest that I value pursuing more stress, more clutter, more hurry, 
or more joy, more connection, or more meaning. That's what I want to invite us to think about as we move forward into this week. And as a part of that, I'm going to give you just some practical options here. Steps that you can take to live this this simple life out. Now, simplicity is not something that we find over and over in the Scriptures. In fact, we would just say it's sort of the thread that holds together the fabric of the kingdom of God. The simplicity rooting out from our lives the the unnecessaries so that we can focus upon the most important, which is the kingdom of God. It's not about less joy. It's, It's about more freedom. It's not about having nothing. It's about challenging our heart's posture towards those some things or any things that we currently possess. Richard Foster says it this way, simplicity is an inward reality seen in our outward lifestyle. And can I give you just four quick things that you can do to start practicing simplicity? The first one that I want to invite you to do is to think about the praise principle. The praise principle is simple. Starting each day, I want to invite you. In fact, I had a good friend of mine and we were talking about sort of emerging from a really difficult season of our lives and, I, and he said, I'm keeping a praise journal. I said, praise journal? He goes, yeah. He said, Jeff, what I realized is that the darker and darker my life became, the more I was only thinking about what I didn't have. And so every morning I made it a practice where I'd start listing out the good things that were currently in my life. And he started giving God praise. I praise God for the current job that I have. I praise God for the current provision I have. I praise God for the current relationships I'm in. Not that all of those or any of those might not change at some point, and not that it's not bad to pursue another career or another job or whatever. It just means that when you're operating out of gratitude, you're less driven by frenetic-paced insecurity. Your changes, the, the decisions you make to pursue whatever house or whatever job or whatever, whatever the more could be is driven less by insecurity or consumptive desire and more out of a reflective pause to think, you know what? By God's grace, God's grace is affording me an opportunity here. But that's born out of praise, praising God for what you currently have. The second thing is, this one's tough. It's the purchase pause. There was a great story in the New York Times recently about a lady in the midst of 2020 who made up her mind that she was not going to buy anything but the necessities for the entire year. And by necessities, I mean groceries and an occasional haircut. Nothing else. She said, I'm not buying anything else for this entire year. And so she makes her way throughout the entire year and she says, she confesses, like, I didn't miss anything. And what it, left me was, what it left me with was a whole bunch of extra that I was able to help friends and family who had a lot less than I did. That's like the reverse of the story of the barn builder, right? Like that's the complete opposite. That's, there's something kingdom in that. The third one that I would encourage you to would be the possession purge. This is painful but freeing. When you can begin to look at your stuff, there's, there's a great challenge out there. If you want to really challenge yourself, do 30 things in 30 days. Get rid of 30 things in 30 days, okay? That means every day you find something from your house, and you're like, 
I don't need, I don't need that anymore. And you make a few piles, right? One I'm going to give away, one that I'm going to throw away, and one that I'm just not quite sure yet. <laughs> and they say you box up all the things that you're not sure about, and if you've not needed them in six weeks, you get rid of them. 30 things in 30 days. You begin to declutter life. You begin to realize many of those things that I just keep impulse adding aren't necessary. And the last practice, this is the one that I really want to encourage you to do. And it's something that I don't think we're always really good at in the Christian church because so much of our stuff is heady. But did you know you actually carry dissatisfaction disease in your bodies? So I want to call you to a peace posture. And what I mean by is check how your body is. A lot of times when we are dissatisfied and when we are really overly consumed with needing more, wanting more, being, being discontent with all that we have, living in the shame and insecurity that I need to possess more, we actually take up that into our bodies. And we'll try to sit down and relax. Try to sit down and what do we do with our foot? It's tapping, right? Or someone says, hey, let's pray. And you're like this, okay, then we're pray. If someone's talking to you and you can't hear them, why? Because you're thinking about the next thing that you have to do to get to the hours that you have to work, the more that you have to gain in order to, to get what you really want. And I say sit down and, and be cognizant of your body. Where are you holding your tension? Your shoulders, your back, your hands, your heart. Are you breathing well? Has your, new, has your new desire for more outpaced your, your well-being where you're actually breathing more quickly? <sighs> what would it look like to be cognizant and aware of our bodies where we can live in a sense of contentment and peace and start to let some things go? Because that's what Jesus longs for us. Come to me, all you who are weary and frenetic fast-paced and hurrying and comparing and valuing yourself by all of those things that don't mean a hill of beans to Jesus and I will give you I will give you rest that's the promise of Jesus to yield those things to Jesus I think had I not discovered Jesus Something as simple as the insecurities that I faced in that university bookstore would have lingered with me. Because Jesus had found me amidst life's broken road, God had given me such a simplicity that in the moments of that desire, in that moments of becoming aware of my dissatisfaction, I was able to look across the room to my wife and go, you know what? got everything I need. I was able to look over and see my boys and go, you know what? Look at all that I've been given. And I was able to look in the face of those who have far less than I do and go, God, I'm responsible for what I do have, not what I don't have. And because of the kingdom of Jesus, God began to move through and pierce through all of that stuff that clouds my sense of value to invite you to do so as well. For some of us, the first step is not a purchase pause or a possession purge. For some of us, that first step is yielding our lives to Jesus. 
saying, you know what, I, I've got I've to give myself over. I've got to say, Jesus, you've got a better way because here's the beauty of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. Because of what Christ has done for you, no portfolio, no promotion, no prosperity, no stage of life can ever give you the fullness for which you were created for. Only Jesus can do that. That's the promise of the gospel if you'll yield yourself to it.